Hello and welcome to another episode of Roy's Cast. We are your hosts, Johnny Farley and Sam Wright. Today we are joined by Ian Dyson, a PhD student at the University of Leeds. His PhD is looking at Yorkshire and the Crusades, 1095 to 1291. Sam is currently on tech duties today, so instead we have Adam Cook, another member of the Roy's Committee and our resident medievalist. Hello, Adam. Hi, it's uh, great to be here on my first episode of Roy's Cast. I'm very excited. Um, Ian, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, it's great to be here as well. Thank you very much for having me on. So obviously today we're going to be talking about your thesis work on the Third Crusade and, and Yorkshire in particular, but I guess first is first. Tell us a little bit about the, the Third Crusade. So I think the, um, the Third Crusade is perhaps the one uh, in England that we're the most familiar with, um, categorised uh, by Richard the Lionheart going off to, to the east to fight against uh, the Ayyubid Sultan Saladin. I think it's the one that we've all encountered the most throughout our kind of uh, medieval education, perhaps the one we're all most familiar with kind of being made famous through Robin Hood and all of the uh, various different things we get exposed to. Um, the Third Crusade, though, was called on the 29th of October, 1187, by Gregory VIII in his papal bull, Audita Tremendi, as a direct response to the Christians' defeat at the Battle of Hattin and its subsequent loss of the city of Jerusalem to Muslim forces. Under the command of Saladin, the Sultan of Egypt, in 1187, the news itself was said to be so shocking that the uh, Gregory's predecessor, Urban III had dropped dead upon hearing the, the news be relayed to him. The kings of England and France, Richard I and Philip II, as well as the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa, all took the cross and made plans to head to the east. In the east, uh, as this was going on, Guy de Lusignan, uh, the king of Jerusalem, had recently been released from captivity by Saladin and had laid siege to the coastal city of Acre in August of 1189. The German army, led by Frederick Barbarossa, departed first. They left Germany in May of 1189 and chose to travel over land, just as their predecessors on the Second Crusade had done. Unfortunately, the German section of the Crusade collapsed when Frederick drowned on the 10th of June 1190 in modern-day Turkey. Richard departed England in, 11, in April 1190 and linked up with Philip at Versailles. The two kings travelled together as far as Lyon before deciding to reconvene at the city of Messina on the island of Sicily. On Sicily, Richard and Philip fell out over Richard's decision to break off his marriage to Philip's half-sister, Alice of France, and marry Berenger of Navarre. Philip departed Sicily and headed straight for Acre, arriving at the siege on the 20th of April, 1191. Richard departed Sicily on the 10th of April, but his fleet was struck by a storm and ships containing a large amount of money to fund the crusade ran aground on Cyprus. The Emperor of Cyprus, Isaac Ducas Comnemus, seized the money, causing Richard to invade the island and capturing it in June of 1191. Richard then did sail for Acre, finally joining the siege on the 8th of June, 1191. The city fell soon after on the 12th of July, and Philip promptly departed for home, having continually fought with Richard following the English king's arrival. Richard would go on to defeat Saladin's forces in a pitched battle at Arsurf on the 7th of September, 1191, and then capture the city of Jaffa. His final act in the Holy Land was to fight off an attempt by Saladin to recapture the city of Jaffa on the 5th of July, 1192. Following this, they, the two concluded a peace treaty and Richard departed from the east on the 2nd of September, 1192. So you're going on crusades. Um, you decided you want to go on the third crusade. What, what do you need to do to prepare to, to get there? Before you can set off, obviously, you've got to set your affairs in order, presumably. Of course. So crusade preparation is quite, um, quite a, a wide-reaching thing um, here. Um, of course, you have to finance your journey to the east, um, and there's various examples of how that's done in Yorkshire. We've also got people getting their affairs in order at home, um, preparations both um, kind of for family members who are left behind but also spiritual ones, um, and also things um, 
about what to do if you can't make it, if you've taken a vow and you can't head off to the east. Um, I think the, the obvious place though to start is through financial preparations. Um, the crusade was generally financed through the collection of, of a tax, the Saladin tithe that was gathered in England and, and also in bits of France. Um, but we're not really sure quite how that was collected in England, how much was collected um, and how it was redistributed. Um, for Yorkshire, there's no evidence that survives of kind of how they were collecting this tax, how they went around to, to do it. Um, we know it's sitting there in the background and there's sort of a, a pot of money, but clearly crusaders wanted to contribute to this more. They wanted to essentially have more money potentially, or they weren't, you know, weren't getting enough, or they wanted to be more comfortable. You know, uh, stories by this point must have come back about how much a crusade costed from previous generations. Um, so perhaps people are sort of uh, trying to foreshadow, uh, prepare for what might happen. Uh, but in Yorkshire, there's, there's three examples of fundraising, and they, they cover quite a wide uh, array of amount of money. Uh, Robert, the constable of Howsham, raises 120 marks selling a little land at uh, Thalsthorpe. Um, William, uh, and he sells that to the Abbey of Mew. Um, then there's William Fitzadeline, who sells uh, some land to his, his sergeant for, for 10 marks, so quite a disparity here in how much they're selling it for. And Walter Lanier sells uh, a bovate of land to some nuns at Swine Priory, which is in the East Riding, but he only receives five marks. So we can see there's a sort of disparity in how much people are earning, uh, not earning, raising, how much they want to take with them, and it's maybe an indication of who they're taking with them. Uh, Robert, the constable's amount is very much in line with huge sums of money raised by crusaders going on. Uh, Roger de Mowbray on, on the Second Crusade, or Jocelyn of Louvain, who appears uh, in the Crusade of 1177. Um, these big sums of money, uh, possibly there to pay for followers to go with them. Maybe he's bringing a large retinue with him, something like that, that he's paying for his followers to come with him, whereas people like William Fitzadeline and Walter Lanier, not so much having to support other people. Aside from fundraising, uh, we have this idea, as I said, of taking care of those people you're leaving behind. If you're going to the east, you don't want to sort of turn, you know, leave the people behind with nothing for you, uh, for them whilst you're gone. Um, so the, uh, perhaps the best example of this is a, a landowner called Ralph de Chal, um, who made an agreement with Eastby Abbey uh, that whilst he was on crusade for three years, um, the abbey was to provide for him, uh, for his wife, sorry, uh, three loaves of bread every day. Um, and a quarter of flour a year. So she's getting food and the, to make more food for the entirety of his time away. Now this is signed in a charter that's done before he goes to Jerusalem. Um, there's no evidence in there for any money changing hands. So it's as if he's given land in return for this for these supplies. So he's not raising money to pay for his um, pilgrimage. He's, he's using his own land to su support those who are left behind. Um, similarly, this kind of a protection for the family comes with uh, Roger, son of Richard Touche, who marries his daughter to a neighboring landowner on the day of his departure, this marriage kind of takes place, we assume, and then he sort of waves goodbye and says, I'm off, see you later. Um, but it's a way kind of, um, I think, of securing his property and securing his land to potential um, neighbors wanting to encroach on them. It's one of the problems with launching the Crusaders. People didn't want to go because they're leaving their land exposed. On the Fifth Crusade uh, in Yorkshire, there's an example of somebody's wife being strangled uh, to death and killed whilst he's in the East. So you have this uh, genuine danger to family members. Um, and this seems to be a way of sort of trying to appease, uh, sort of not maybe not appease, but build a relationship with, with your neighbors to kind of protect what's there. Um, finally, there's a guy, John of Pezzestone, who left, leaves his brother in charge of his land. So again, he's finding somebody to look after his lands whilst he's uh, in the East. There's somebody there 
to administer them, to make sure the money's still being collected, to make sure they run properly, that these things aren't, somebody's not going to come in and take them, that somebody is there to look after um, the property. Sort of as well in these, these uh, preparations before you go, people would have been aware of kind of the spiritual benefits of a crusade, but there's also the idea of wanting to kind of get favor before you go to ensure it's going to be safe and you're going to be okay whilst you're away. Um, so we've got two examples in Yorkshire of people making donations to religious institutions immediately prior to departure. Um, there seems to be no land, uh, no finances coming back the other way or land coming, anything like that. It's one of them is a donation of land, one of them is a donation of money. Um, or they're getting seemingly in return. Now these charters do hide things and they might want to disguise it as a gift, but they're getting prayers back and sort of spiritual benefits from donations um, prior to setting out. The final thing comes in, which is incredibly interesting, is the idea of sending a substitute to the East. Um, there's a, a Hugh Lapoitevine who goes to the East as a substitute for his brother. His brother's taken a crusading vow, which he's unable to fulfill. We don't know why he's unable to fulfill it, um, but Hugh goes in his place. Um, he has, he's given a, uh, his brother's lands in Normanton, uh, which is not far away from Leeds, uh, but he gets the, these lands in return for carrying his brother's cross in the east, and it's quite an early example of this. Um, in 1174, Henry the Young King dies and asks William Marshall to take his, uh, to fulfill his crusade vow after, after he's died. He's kind of on his deathbed. It's one of the last things he, he asks for it to happen. Um, and this is quite an early example of it. It's the first example in Yorkshire. There's another one that doesn't happen again until the uh, crusade of Edward I in, in 1271. Um, but it's quite an interesting idea of what have I done if I take a crusade vow and I can't go? People are desperate to fulfill them still and they need to find a way to do it to make sure they can kind of complete that pilgrimage. So we've kind of got a wide range of preparation, both from financial, spiritual, what's being left behind, and also if you can't go. It's really quite a wide-ranging set of factors. Yeah, um, I was just wondering quickly, as a, as a non-medievalist, um, and you mentioned the fundraising and the, the amounts of money involved, is there an easily translatable modern amount of those, sort of the, the marks you were mentioning for giving land to various things, um, just to get an idea of what it would cost now, as it were, to, to do something like that? I'm not sure, is, is the honest answer, I'm not sure. But what you see is this is huge amounts of money. This is not, mm. uh, especially 120 marks, that's, that's wild, like massive amounts of money. The Saladin tithe itself collects about 100,000 marks, I think, or is it, is it 10,000, 100,000, it's 100,000 on its own. That's a tax collection from the entire country. We're looking at Crusade here, raising 120 marks mm. on its own. This is not like chump change, if you like. This is expensive uh, stuff. As for modern implication, like amounts, I'm not sure. Um, in inflation calculators are difficult, but Richard yeah. is spending, uh, so his fundraising for the Crusade is selling off to be able to go and to finance it. Got the salad and tithes collected, but he sells off anything that's not nailed down. Positions he's selling off, he's rights, anything he can sell to kind of fund this. It yeah. it's really is a, a huge costly venture. Um that I'm not sure in modern money quite what it is, but you're looking at for the whole thing is, is millions and millions of pounds in modern mm. money. Whereas this kind of lower level thing, I'm not sure of your exact conversion, yeah. but it's a lot. Like it's right. not to be underestimated how much these people are, are risking yeah. if you like to go. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah. yeah, so a, a significant financial output for a, a lot of these participants. Then, Absolutely. I suppose, sort of in terms of the participants, sort of who were they in Yorkshire? Do we know very much? Do we know how many? So, with any crusade participation, there's uh, a lot of 
evidence that's, that's lost, right? So we don't have kind of full lists of people who went. We have no idea really how many people are going. Um, medieval numbers are always difficult. Medieval kind of use of numbers is always uh, indicative of amount. Like others are 10,000 people might mean there's a lot, not actually 10,000. So it's difficult to sort of estimate how many we've, we've got. Um, in terms of actual recorded participants that we can connect to Yorkshire, um, there's 32, which initially might not seem like a lot, especially if you're in maybe a non-medieval list listening to this. Um, that doesn't sound that many, but it's the most of any county of England for this crusade. And this is kind of one of the biggest crusades participation from England, probably the biggest. Um, the next amount, large amount we've got for sort of uh, county participation is Lincolnshire with 23, and then it's followed by Suffolk with 18. So you can see Yorkshire is contributing compared to those counties, vast amount. So it, it suggests that there's large numbers of, of people from Yorkshire going to the east. Um, Yorkshire participants that we're seeing on this crusade are drawn from kind of all levels of society. So I mentioned we've kind of got these large landowners. Um, these are sort of evidence through Nigel de Mowbray, um, who's, who's there, who's part of the Mowbray family, a uh, very wealthy family in the north of England. Um, we've got smaller landowners like the, the Hugh de Potavina mentioned. Um, quite a few of them are, are, are there. We've got members of the church, like John de Morick, who's a canon at York. So we can see that it's not only combatant people, we've got, we've got spiritual benefits there. And in the theme of non-combatant crusaders, we've got these this kind of list of individuals that Roger of Howden, who was from Yorkshire himself, a member of the church and a royal administrator, who's on the crusade, who's writing a, writes two chronicles in the end, but generally the same information in both. Um, but he records a bunch of non-combatant crusaders who you wouldn't normally see in any other kind of, of source. Um, all this is quite impressive. Uh, it's kind of 32 participants from Yorkshire. Again, it doesn't sound like much, but it really is. Um, but it's also impressive because there's no evidence for promotion for the crusade in Yorkshire. There's no uh, evidence of a, a preaching tour coming around, no evidence of quite how people were motivated to take the cross, like what was going on, how that information was disseminated around England. Um, this is not strange. Um, general evidence for preaching across England as a whole is very inconsistent, generally just little pockets of it or mentioned in very broad terms. Um, the first time in Yorkshire that there's evidence for preaching for going to the Holy Land comes in 1291 following the fall of Acre, kind of the last um, crusading, if you like, Frankish uh, territory out there. It's the last city falls and it kind of prompts some kind of preaching tour. But that's the first time in the entire period of the crusade, your traditional crusading period, uh, where we see any kind of, of preaching occurring. So this idea of no preaching for the third crusade isn't strange in itself. It's, it's sort of what we see across the the entire period, but it seems that people were knowing about this. It seems to be a very popular event. Lots of people are going, sudden movement of people, like the landmark is clearly flooded very quickly with bits of land for people trying to get there, and everybody wants to go, whether they're big landowners, little landowners, members of the church, people of little to no social standing, everybody wants to be involved in this venture. So I, I guess on that point, if, if there's no real evidence of a, a lot of preaching and you've got all these people from, from different social sort of standings and as you say by this point crusading is not a not a new idea as it was sort of at the first crusade it's it's an established thing why go i guess if you're if you've got all these people from different different groups and rich landholders go in and then people of lower standing go in what what sort of unites them is it common motivations different motivations so i think it, it's impossible to to know any crusaders 
motivation for going anywhere. You know, we don't have a, a diary that says, I want to go on crusade because, like, you know, we don't have any evidence like that. So often it's a, a lot of trying to figure out what may have pushed someone to go. Um, it's quite a few different things that, that can come in. Um, but sort of, I think that, you know, want to be part of this big event, whether you're being dragged along by your lord and landowner. We see sort of mentioned in the fundraising, um, Robert, the constable of Housham, is raising 120 marks. It's likely he's bringing followers with him. Um, so you may just be asked to go or you may see an opportunity to go with a landowner, with your lord, who may pay the majority of your crusading costs. So you may, you know, and this is all guesswork, I guess, for Yorkshire Crusaders. Um, you know, you may just be following along. You may be told to go. You may see an opportunity to go and be following that. Um, we do see in previous crusades um, this idea of following in the footsteps. Families have multiple generations of uh, of the family that will go to the east. So Roger de Lacey, uh, we see on the third crusade, is likely following in the footsteps of his father. Hugh de Lacey went on two crusades, uh, both with the Counts of Flanders, first one in 1157, then he went back with uh, in 1177. Nigel de Mowbray is similar. He's following the footsteps again of his father, who went to the East three times in his his life. And, and um, Roger was was killed. Uh, Roger fought at the Battle of Hattin um, and was taken prisoner and died in the East shortly afterwards. So there's a clear connection in the, in the Mowbray family between crusading. He was also on the Second Crusade. And legend has it that he fought a um, Muslim prince um, in single combat and, and defeated him. So he's got quite a legacy that's being attached to him. So there could have been some influence there. There's also wanting to go because crusading is sort of proven in Yorkshire from the Yorkshire evidence of this idea of it can rebuild a reputation. Like if you've knackered your reputation, go on crusade, you come back and all is well, it seems. Um, best example of this is sort of in previous generations of Stephen Count of Amal on the first crusade, he becomes Lord of Holdenness following the crusade, which is impressive considering he was part of a plot to uh, remove or kill William Rufus and have himself put on the throne. So for him to go from doing that to then being rewarded almost with the Lordship of Holderness, which is a major uh, Lordship in East Riding, shows that there's some kind of, something's happened to rebuild his reputation and stock in the eyes of his peers. And the crusade seems to be quite pivotal in that. Um, as also, we can see Roger de Mowbray, as mentioned previously, going into East in 1177 is on the back of him rebelling in 1174. And the king has to come round and absolutely stamp out his rebellion. He then goes off to the East. And when he comes back again, he seems to be back in the king's good books. He gets his lands back. He seems to be fine. Um, so it seems that crusading, and there's other examples of this, seems to really help with rebuilding reputations. On the crusade itself, we see Ranulf de Glanville who was a Justice Year of England and Sheriff of Yorkshire, uh, not long before the Crusade, but Richard stripped him of his titles and stripped and fined him an absolutely astronomical sum of 15,000 marks for abuse of his position. Like what he's doing, we don't know. Uh, chronicles are very much disagree on it. Um, but what we could have here is Ranulph is going on Crusade to try and improve his standing, rebuild his reputation through being on crusade, whether that's through the actions he does or whether that's through being able to get close to Richard because Richard's there, he can prove himself to the king. We know Richard's quite warlike. We know this is what he values. So Ranulph's quite old, but maybe he's seeing it's a way back in. Um, they're sort of the, the main things we see in Yorkshire up to this point. Is we can also see from the crusade itself, it gives you the ability to move up the social ladder. You can prove yourself. And there's three really strong examples of that, which I'm sure we'll come back to, but Baldwin de Bethune, Robert of Turn Turnham and Gerard I de Furnival all 
gain substantial land holdings for either themselves or their families on the back, off the back of participation in this this crusade. Yeah, so you so you mentioned social mobility and and a few names there of people who used the crusades to to gain some level of social mobility. Presumably, that means that they obviously must have done something on on crusade to to sort of acquire that. What what sort of actions do we see people from Yorkshire doing on crusade? Do we get any sense of that? So, as he coming back to evidence is is fragmentary. That's the sort of pitfall of studying the Middle Ages. You end up with only getting tiny, tiny snapshots into people's lives. And, and the same is true here. If you're not at the absolute top of the social system, people aren't really going to write about you. Um, what we have from Yorkshire, though, is small little snapshots into these things. And it, I won't go over all of them, that there are a few, but some of the main ones which I think are sort of generally quite interesting is um, there's two Yorkshire crusaders, Ralph de Tilly and Humphrey de Vailly, who are um, recorded as trying to uh, scale the walls at the city of Acre during the, the long siege at the start. Um, we, in, in the recounting of, of their sort of escalade up the wall, they're you know recorded as being pelted with Greek fire. Um, they're getting shot with arrows and they get beaten back from the wall. Um, at which point the defenders try and pull their ladder over the back into the into the city. Um, and we read about how Ralph and Humphrey, especially, are very heroic in getting that ladder back. They really force themselves to the front. It's quite a um, it's a really interesting sort of account of the back and forth of siege warfare, um, of how important these things like ladders were and how much they kind of their actions were, were to be remembered. Like keeping hold of this ladder was uh, really important. In, in the same passage, we hear that the German crusaders, we don't know who they are, lost their ladder. And they're very keen to show the difference in the passage. We have people from England kept it, people from Germany lost it. Um, so the kind of heroic things are being uh, remembered. We also have a record at the Siege of Acre of Robert Trusbutt, who is another Yorkshire landowner, is involved in an effort to collect money for the poor um, at the Siege of Acre. You know, people running out of money quickly, prices uh, for basic items absolutely spiral, like eggs and things like that, going up again for astronomical fees of money. Um, and what they notice is that the poor are really poor and are really struggling. And, and Robert Trusbutt, along with um, Hubert Walter, the Bishop of Salisbury, organise a collection for the poor. And they're going around trying to make sure that people can eat and survive. So we can see a camaraderie forming between crusaders and us um, there and as a, a Yorkshireman, if you like, at, at the centre of it. Um, we've one final example would be Gerard, the first of Furnival, we've mentioned a couple of times so far, but he's um, kind of makes himself on crusade. And again, we'll, we'll come back to him in, in more detail, I think, later in the podcast. But he's part of an envoy after the crusade's been finalised that's supposed to organise with Saladin for the safe passage of pilgrims to Jerusalem, Christian crusaders who want to visit Jerusalem um, he's there to kind of all, he's supposed to be there to help meet with Saladin to organise safe passage for those pilgrims uh, he's travelling with two other uh, crusaders and they stop for a, a rest on their, their journey and fall asleep now they are supposed to be ahead of um, a party of pilgrims who end up going past them um, and when they've slept the whole day they wake up realise what's happened uh, they have to run to catch up with the, the party that they were supposed to be um, securing safe passage for, and, and it leads to quite a problem in the crusading, uh, between the crusaders and the fact they've been walking across what is essentially hostile territory without protection. Nobody knows they're coming, nobody knows quite what they're doing. So they left themselves very much open to attack. Um, but it's quite um, a prominent position for someone from Yorkshire to be in. Like he is entrusted with, you know, with taking news to Saladin to meet with Saladin or, or Safadin, the source is again, slightly unclear. But he is 
entrusted with the idea of securing the, the safe passage of these these pilgrims. So you can see Yorkshire people involved in various points in the crusade doing various different things, whether that's fighting, whether that's collection of money, or whether that's in the administrative side of the crusade. So you can see them sort of popping up all over the place. You mentioned sort of camaraderie and, and groups, and obviously if you're going on crusade, you're, you're going to a event is the wrong word, but a, a process that is being carried out by people from multiple kingdoms, multiple regions, all sort of together, whatever groups they might be within. Do you get any sense of whether people from Yorkshire mix very much with, with people from elsewhere, or sort of who do they, they go with when they go? So geographic origin seems to play quite a strong role in where, in, in who crusaders travel with. There's, there's feudal ties, for lack of a better phrase, kind of Lord Vassal connections that dictate in some cases who people will travel with, but also geographic origins seem to be quite um, important. Uh, there's records for the crusade uh, before it sets off uh, in one of the chronicles that sort of talks about the different colors of crosses that crusaders are given from different places. So your French crusaders had a, a red cross, English crusaders had a white cross and, and so on. So they were very much breaking themselves up already based on geographic origin at the, sort of the very top end of the, the system. But I think what we're seeing for the third crusade is Yorkshire people are traveling together based on their geographic origins, like where they're from, like Yorkshire people are sticking with Yorkshire people for the crusade. I mentioned earlier, uh, Roger of Howden's Chronicle. Um, again, Roger uh, from Yorkshire, from Howden in Yorkshire. Um, he has in his chronicle a list of the people that died at the siege of Acre. He was there and he's recording people who are who were killed at various points during the siege and he compiles them into these big lists and these lists generally are comprised of really really important high-ranking nobles who are related to the kings of england and france these are really are the top level people uh, that you'd expect to see in chronicles um but at the end of this list you have a sort of a, record the names of a bunch of yorkshire and lincolnshire individuals who seem to have absolutely no social standing in comparison to the people in this list, which begs the question of why are they there and why have they been included together? Um, what it says to me and, and the research from other places seems to suggest that these are people that Roger would have known personally. Um, he's including people he knows on there and they all have a shared geographic place, which is close to Howden. Like they would have been people who knew they would have been together for the crusade and they would have, um, they're from a similar place. So we can see they probably would have traveled together and died together in the East. Um, but they've remained together. And this is not something that's uh, only seen on this crusade, on the Fifth Crusade, uh, which targets the Egyptian city of, of Damietta with the idea of going up to Cairo. Um, John de Lacy, a landowner there, signs a charter outside the walls and it's witnessed by a bunch of his followers, all of whom are from uh, his lands. Um, and in that charter, there's a group of Yorkshire crusaders, which is very similar to kind of the group that's being made up here. So we can see this kind of idea of Yorkshire traveling with Yorkshire, like people who know each other traveling together. Um, and on the third crusade, there's a charter signed and it's not quite as good as John de Lacy's one because the um, witness list has been cut off, but this is a, an individual who's giving land to the, the Templars at North Therabee. Um, and the witness to that, the only person in the cartulary who's been recorded is Roger of Howden. So it's a Yorkshire Crusader's charter that's being witnessed by at least one of the Yorkshire Crusader, again, showing a geographic connection between them so we can see that people are very keen to remain together in groups based off these geographic origins. Um, Roger of Howden himself talks about traveling to um, 
the east, traveling to, to the Siege of Acre on a boat with a thousand Londoners. We see uh, on the second crusade, there's um, at the Siege of Lisbon, the crusade kind of splinters off and part of it, most of it goes to the whole land, but there's the, the end of, some of it ends up in Portugal. And um, there's a group of crusaders who are listed as being from Ipswich who are under a Welsh cat. Uh, so again, they're being defined by their geographic origin and there's more than one of them from the same place. So we can see this idea of crusaders very much traveling together and staying together for the duration of their expeditions. So you, you mentioned earlier a few people by name, people like Gerard de Ferneville. I wondered if you could talk a bit more about them and sort of social mobility for, for them. Yeah, so I, I touched earlier on, on the idea of the crusade being uh, something that people used to kind of go up in the social hierarchy. And it seems that the, the Third Crusade really did that for, for people uh, and it really impacted onto to Yorkshire. There's three examples of large Yorkshire lordships being handed out to um, people that Richard had grown to trust on the crusade. It seems the reward of being on the crusade, being close to Richard, was these large inheritances that you were able, able to get hold of. So as you mentioned, there's, there's Gerald I of Furnival, Baldwin de Bethune, and, and Robert of Turnham. Um, all three of them really profit off the back of going on the crusade. Uh, we start with Robert of Turnham. He kind of sets out a little social st standing, uh, but he comes to prominence on the crusade with the suppression of Cyprus. Uh, we see him serve as Richard, Richard's admiral following the capture of the island, and he's left as a co-governor um, when Richard goes off to the Siege of Acre. Uh, we see uh, a rebellion tries to start, and, and Robert puts it down um, and hangs the leader. And this is all made it into the Chronicle of Mew Abbey and, and Roger of Howden as well. And it's talking about how successful Robert is in ending this rebellion, how important that seems to be. And um, we see that Robert, again, after doing that, seems to come over to Acre, seems to come over to be into Richard's service and remains close to him throughout the crusade. Uh, we see him being recorded as carrying the king's equipment back from the Holy Land. And then uh, at the end of the, the crusade, uh, when Richard's traveling home, he gets captured by uh, an Austrian duke, and he, he, the Duke of Austria. Um, and Robert, as well as uh, Baldwin de Bethune, is, is very much instrumental in the hostage situation that goes on in getting Richard back. Um, so Robert is selected to be a hostage. He spends, and during his time as, his, as a hostage, um, he's there to ensure ransom payments will be, be made. Um, so it's funnily enough, while he's as a hostage, he is um, rewarded with a, a marriage to Isabel Fossard, the daughter and heiress to a very powerful Yorkshire baron who was William Fossard. Um, this inheritance was formed of the Lordship of Moorgrave, um, the Castle of the Honour and 34 and a half knights fees, which is all located up near, nearby to Whitby. A big, you know, big inheritance to get hold of. And it seems to be off the back of his crusading. Similarly, there's Baldwin de Bethune, who's the brother of a famous French poet, Conan de Bethune. Uh, who was a man renowned for his sense of honor and prowess and it served Richard you know to keep him one of his closest companions is, is throughout the crusade um before the crusade we see Baldwin is granted Chateau and its heiresses by Henry II uh, but Richard decides that that's not right for him and he gives it to Andrew de Chauvigny uh, a knight who had fought with Richard against Henry II in 1189 and what we're seeing here is this idea of Richard um, trusting people he fought with. You fight with me, you, you know, bleed with me, um, I can trust you and I will reward you for that. And you can see here he's giving this large lordship to somebody who had taken his side against his father, like he, he's uh, backing his military people. So we can see that people probably were aware of what was going on and would have served, as we talked from motivation earlier, this idea of wanting to get close to the king in, in a military um, environment. But we see Baldwin again appears uh, in the events of Richard's capture. Um, so 
to sort of maybe give more context to that, Richard's sailing back and there's a storm and he eventually wants to, he decides he wants to go over land. It wrecks many of the Crusaders' boats. Um, so it comes to agreement with pirates in Corfu that he's allowed to, to land and as he's crossing uh, overland, he's captured by, as I said, the Duke of Austria. Um, there's lots of interesting stories about quite how that came around and maybe something for another podcast, but Baldwin uh, is very much close to him the whole way through this um, incident and he is... Um, sort of with the king um, as he's captured. Um, he again is used as a hostage. He's again used in this kind of backwards and forwards situation. He brings um, he brings across other hostages for him, uh, like including Richard's sister, um, Alice. Um, but, you know, eventually the Duke, Duke dies and the whole thing kind of peters out and, and Richard can kind of come home. But he again is rewarded with a large... Um, inheritance in England, which is the um, Lordship of Holderness, a, a really big, prominent East Riding Lordship. Um, and the final example of this is Gerald de Furnival, who we've, we've sort of mentioned. Um, he appears to have been a follower of the French king before uh, the Third Crusade, but flips over to be with Richard uh, after Philip leaves Acre. Um, we see probably the case. Roger of Howden doesn't mention him. We know Roger of Howden sailed back with Philip, so kind of serves that his kind of parts in the crusade are not recorded by Howden. Um, but what we get is Gerard being recorded as being next to Richard in the Battle of Jaffa. He's very much in the combat with Richard. He's one of the few knights who's with him, but he's very clear, clear in the source that he's almost next to Richard. So we can see in a military situation, this is kind of quite a famous battle, quite an interesting f battle, um, that Gerald de Fernand was placed right next to Richard that shows maybe his prominence in that battle. Um, and he's sort of one of, one of a, a very few number of knights that maybe suggest that, that he kind of gained Richard's trust and um, respect almost through his being there at that moment um, and fighting. Uh, he's also then, the next time he's recorded on Crusade is this, uh, as I mentioned earlier, him being part of this embassy that's going across to speak to um, to speak with Saladin. Uh, he's you know taking a, a letter from Richard to sort of arrange a safe passage, and he falls asleep, and and you know the, the convoy of pilgrims goes past him. Um, but the Third Crusade really seems to have elevated his status uh, and that of his family, um, because on the, again on the back of the Crusade, he's able to um, sort of organize a marriage for his son, Gerard II of Furnival, uh, to Maud, who's part of the Lovetop family and inheritance there, which is a huge um, Hallamshire lordship. So again, he is taking on, on the back of a crusade, a large lordship. So it's three of Yorkshire's major lordships, which are handed out to people who have sort of expressed, you know, or have been sort of recorded as giving quite impressive military service alongside Richard. So we can see that by going on crusade, there's this idea you can move up the social hierarchy if you can prove yourself in that theatre to Richard the Lionheart. You can move move up. You're going to be rewarded, and it's going to be worth your while. Uh, they might have been aware of this. I mentioned, sorry, again, earlier uh, about this idea of Richard giving Baldwin's uh, land somewhere else, but you can also see that the Admiral of Richard's fleet, another Yorkshire landowner, William de Force, had been given uh, the same uh, holdings of... Um, the Holdness Lordship um, prior to the Crusade to William uh, de Fors, uh, because he had fought with, with Richard before. It was Richard's admiral was clearly somebody who had been close to him previously. So we can see there's a precedent for this. So 
Um, people would have been well aware of that before going. It seems to be a real, um, really important way of, of moving through the social hierarchy would be getting close to Richard, and this seems to provide a very good case to do it. Great, yeah, that was, um, that was a really interesting episode, guys. Um, thank you very much for your time, Ian, and, and your, your knowledge on the subject, and thank you, Adam, for filling in for us non-medievalists. Uh, a bit lost by a few, of the, a few of the references, but it was explained really well by you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So we are currently recording this episode in Leeds, which has reminded us all that uh, the tickets will be available for the Roy's Conference now, as you're listening to this episode, as it comes out. So uh, if you'd like to come along, um, no no papers needed at this point to be given. Um, so yeah, there'll be links on our socials. There'll be a link in the bio of this podcast. Um, yeah, go and, go and book your ticket and we look forward to seeing you there in June. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.